Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. Today, I have a very special guest here with me today, someone who definitely has never been on a podcast with me before. The former co-host of the NBA Deep Dives podcast is now here for his first appearance on the Deep Dives podcast. I'm here with Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, it's good to podcast with you again. It's been far longer than it's been in a very long time. <laughs> yeah, the, the and I'm excited for this one. The couple guys we're talking about are a lot of fun. It's good to be back with you talking ball. Um, obviously, we talk about these guys behind the scenes a lot, but we haven't recorded anything in a while. So it, it, it feels good to be back. Well, to welcome you back, we're going to talk about one of your favorite prospects from one of your favorite teams. So clearly, this is going to be the, the experience you were looking for diving back in here. And we are talking, of course, about Jet Howard of Michigan, who has been, I think it's fair to say, the biggest riser of the early portion of the college basketball season. Not for you. I'm sure you had him at like number two on your board heading into the season anyway. But he is someone who has had a really spectacular run to start the season for Michigan. But in your latest Friday screener piece, you focus specifically on his off-ball movement. So... Let's just start with a broad overview. What stood out to you the most about Jet Howard and his off-ball movement that made you write about that for the piece? Um, I The main thing was that there was a lot of it. And really, we just don't often see that from 18-year-olds and, you know, pure freshmen uh, because they just don't have that skill set kind of ingrained into their natural habits, you know, not necessarily their fault by any means, but we just don't typically see that. And when we do, it's usually just these light out lights out shooters who are just sprinting off screens for catch and shoot stuff. But even 18 year olds at, you know, as freshmen, that's a really hard skill to develop. So we don't, it's not something we still frequently see. Mostly it's good cutting or a simple relocation on the perimeter um, to make themselves available when their teammate drives or is getting doubled in the post or stuff like that. Um, and Jet certainly does all of that, but then there are also these plays that Michigan are run, are running for him, where they're having him go through, you know, a myriad of screens and running off screens at different angles and different parts of the floor, and then giving him a bunch of different options and trusting his decision making coming off those screens of what to do, where he has the freedom to pull up in the mid range or attack the rim or kick out or you know snake back and reuse the screen for a pull-up three. So the fact that he is not only trusted, obviously he's playing for his dad, and so who else is going to know his game as as well as his dad? Um, so obviously there's some ingrained trust that comes with that, but he's proving them right. And like all of these plays, they're 
fruitful, they're successful, like they're finding different ways to succeed um, by putting him through a lot of motion off ball. It's fascinating to me that he's as good off ball as he is at this age. And you obviously noted that up front, but I mean, I don't know, maybe this is an oversimplification, but I think for me, the fact that he was playing at IMG Academy with a ton of great talent around him is a huge part of why he's able to do this. I mean, you know, most of the players who we're talking about as potential first round guys, maybe even potential lottery guys, depending on, you know, the rest of the season for Jet Howard, these are guys who were the best player on their high school team, the best player on their AAU team, the best player that they played with or against for the vast majority of their basketball experience. Whereas, you know, this is something that came up with Jalen Hochefino when Maxwell and I were talking about him a few weeks ago on the podcast where, you know, he played on an excellent team. He had fantastic yeah. talent surrounding him and he wasn't necessarily the best player on his high school team. And I think that necessitated a lot of his growth as an off-ball player, which we're now seeing come to light in the college game as well. Yeah, and at IMG, I mean, obviously Jet didn't do most of the ball handling because they had Jaden Bradley, they had Keontae George, they had Jairus Walker. So there really wasn't much for Jet to do on ball. And since those guys had such gravity, there wasn't even this high-level off-ball movement that we're seeing now. But there was that innate understanding of when and where to relocate on the perimeter, when and where to crash the offensive glass, you know, how to um, counter defensive rotations and make himself open for his teammates and make their life easier because it's just, it wasn't reactionary. It was um, proactive. It was just natural for him. And that's carried over pretty seamlessly to, to uh, Michigan's early season start. So you mentioned the proactivity of it and how it seemed to come to him naturally. And so I want to, you know, reference the first clip that you bring up in the piece. And the thing that I think is the most interesting to me about the clip in particular, but Jet Howard's game in general is these aren't massive movements, right? This isn't, yeah. you know, this isn't necessarily, you know, the Steph Curry running off 74 off ball screens and finally getting himself open and, you know, throwing it up with two seconds left on the shot clock, right? This is just very small movements, you know, just a few feet to the right, a few feet to the left to get in a better position for the pass. It's not even to get open, right? It's just to be in a better position than he was before he made the movement. And, you know, that's something that when we talk about, you know, how the lanes are X size in college basketball and they're X inches shorter when you get to the NBA level, the fact that Howard already at 18 has this understanding of where he needs to be and how to get there and when to get there too is going to be really crucial for his ability to fit in at a rotation at the next level, in addition to what he's already showing at Michigan. Yeah. And I, and I started the piece off by referencing guys like JJ Reddick, Rip Hamilton, Steph Curry, who go through cardio sessions with their off ball yeah. movement, you know, when, when they played and that's not necessarily what jet does. His are much more specific, uh, much more efficient. And it's just really concentrated and, pointed to what he needs to do. Um, and I, I think the clip that you were talking about was the Kobe Bufkin drive and yeah. uh, Jet was in strong side corner, just slightly above the break. And his man went for a dig. The second he turns his back, Jet immediately sinks down to the corner. You know, he moved probably like five or six feet, but it was enough where his defender who's now spinning around and lost Jet and takes that extra second to figure out where he is 
that's as much of a window as Jet needs to get off that open three. So he he knows what defenders are supposed to do. And when they don't do what they're supposed to do, he's going to move into the pockets that they can't see and it really exploit whatever defensive lapses occur. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the part of, you know, what they can and can't see, because if you look at the clip, it looks very obvious. Like, okay, defender turns his head, great, slide to the corner, easy three. But, you know, being able to make that read and decision off ball, you know, in a split second, right? I mean, defender turns his head, boom, Howard's moving. You know, it's something that looks incredibly obvious when you look at it on Mm -hmm. tape. But when you look at him do it time and time and time and time again, it's like, okay, you know, there's something that, he's seeing here that, you know, maybe it looks obvious when you can, you know, pause the clip or slow it down or, you know, look at 700 of them, but just his ability to make that recognition in real time and move to where he needs to be just really opens up the rest of the offense for his teammates around them too. And and the immediacy of his movements in those situations allows him to get his feet set and really gather the ball and get it in a shooting pocket if the pass isn't perfect. Whereas if he hesitates for a second, then that turns into a movement three instead of a standstill one. So not only is he making life easier for his opponents because he's increasing that passing window for them to find him, but he's also making his own life easier by simplifying the shot attempt itself. So there's a lot of you know clips in the piece about his movement for threes but you know i think something that is particularly important with howard that you also mentioned in the piece is he's doing this at all three levels it's not just you know him being able to get himself open from deep which to be clear i mean at his size 6'8 240 you know built like an absolute tank you know if he was just doing that then he would have a role in the nba as wow this dude's a massive stretch four right but you know, it's ability not just to be able to do that from beyond the arc, but his ability to do that at all three levels, that's really crucial. And, you know, it's unfair, I think, to be as unkind as I'm about to be to Jabari Smith Jr. But, you know, part of what I struggled with with the evaluation with him last season is, okay, he does all this great work to get himself open from deep, and he's just a spectacular shooter. And I wouldn't put Jet Howard in the same class of shooter as Jabari Smith Jr., no. but... I also am much more comfortable with, you know, Jet making a quick decision if he's pushed off the three-point line and his ability to, you know, get into open space, not just from three-point range, but also as a cutter, his ability to do that from all three levels is just going to be huge for his ability to fit into a rotation at the next level. Yeah, and in today's NBA, everyone has to be able to dribble, pass, and shoot. That's what every team looks for. And then if you can do all of that and have size, Perfect. That's exactly the type of versatile wing that every NBA team constantly wants to fill out their roster with. And Jets kind of proven that he's exactly that. Um, there, there really are no more specialists that get meaningful minutes in the NBA anymore. And if you're just a spot up three or spot up shooter or just an awesome passer or just an awesome ball handler, you're probably not going to play. And you have to be able to do a little bit of all of it in pretty much every area of the floor. That's how demanding the NBA is getting and how skilled the league has gotten. And the fact that Jet is doing this while also being trusted to make, to go through his progressions like a quarterback almost um, and read the defense, read where they're rotating, read what areas they've abandoned to make that rotation and is his guy in an open area to exploit it. It's just, it's really impressive and it just really screams. It's like, okay, this is a coach's kid. This is a guy that grew up, you know, with 
a coach as his dad who is showing him all these defensive rotations and different areas of the floor that can can be exploited based on how the ball and players move. So let's actually move on to his passing because that I think is what has surprised me the most about early season Jet Howard. And granted, I have already done a Mia or I'm, I guess doing it right now, the Mia Culpa. I was wrong about Jet Howard. I should have had him higher heading into the season. And yeah, you should have. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that makes you happy. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that I think is what stood out to me the most before. And you sort of referenced it in passing earlier that because he was playing on a team with Keontae George and Jairus Walker, he didn't have the ball in his hands all that much. And so he didn't get to show that he can do all of these things. But, you know, Nathan taunted me for it on the last Deep Dives podcast because of how often I sort of repeat this. But, I mean, you know, you sort of touched on it already. Being able to cover all of those bases, you know, someone who can – dribble if forced off the line, someone who can shoot, someone who can pass, you know, the more things that you can do in that regard, especially given, you know, that Jet Howard has the requisite size to play either forward spot, you know, like his multitude of skills will make it easier for him to earn his way into an NBA rotation. And, you know, I think the shooting was not exactly a surprise. The ability to score down low is not exactly a surprise given that he still looks bigger than basically everybody he plays, (laughs) but the passing has really been the biggest revelation in my mind anyway, from Jed Howard's play in the early season. And I think a lot of that ties into why he's so good as an off ball mover is just, you know, what you mentioned with, you know, being a coach's kid, he clearly reads the game at a very high level already. And that shows up not just in how he can put the ball in the basket, but also in how he creates opportunities for his teammates. Yeah. And, and there were a couple flashes at IMG of him making like some, some nice kick out passes, but it'd be, one maybe two a game because that's just wasn't what his role was and it's always tough to really gauge that stuff especially from more off-ball role players in high school because the defense is what it is um (laughs) but you know now you're going against higher level defenses who are making the better rotations more discipline and pick and roll coverages and he's still making these really timely and accurate pocket passes when coming off of dho's or um, you know, there, uh, one, one of the clips I had was him coming off, curling off a pin down screen, driving, seeing the weak side defender rotating to the middle of the lane. And he just immediately kills his momentum and makes a skip pass right into the shooter's pocket for the wide open corner three. So just that, that level of versatility, you know, he's never going to be a guy who's averaging seven or eight assists a game, but the ball's never really going to stick with him. He's going to find the open guy. He can make a myriad of passes and really just exploit defensive rotations and keep the ball moving and keep the defense moving and making them work. So, yeah, this references something that you brought up in the piece. So I'm just going to quote you directly here. Um, Running the same plays repeatedly is often a killer for offenses. It's easier for the defense to find counters, and most teams don't have players who can process numerous reads in the blank of an eye. Well, Michigan seems to have one of those players in Howard, and that I think really sums it up. You know, he's someone who, if the play breaks down, you can rely on him to make a good next pass to keep the offense running, or, you know, in theory, if he's got an opening, he's going to be someone who you can rely on to attack the basket and, you know, either get defenses in rotation or just generate an easy look for himself at the rim, you know, with Howard, it's, I don't know. I mean, Tyrese Halliburton is always my touchstone for this sort of thing, but it's someone who, when the ball touches their hands, you know, that even if they're not necessarily scoring the ball, you can rely on them to make a good read, to keep the offense flowing in a positive way. And granted, you know, 
that's an unfair comparison to make between a wing forward type and a point guard type like Halliburton. But, you know, I think the, the logical processing of it is the same, right? You can see on every play, okay, you know, they're reading the game at a really high level. They know where they're supposed to be. They know where their teammates are supposed to be. And if everything breaks down, you can rely on them to create something out of nothing more than you can for pretty much anyone else out there on the floor. Yeah. And, and it's just a great way to kind of also analyze his basketball IQ. I, I know that that phrase has so many undertones and stuff that can get misused in so many poor ways. But yes. when we talk about guys processing speed and decision-making and basketball IQ, it's stuff like that where Jed Howard knows exactly where his defender is when he's running off a screen. If they go under, he knows to stop on a dime and just hit that wide open catch and shoot three. If they trail him over Hunter Dick Dickinson's a really big dude. It's hard to get around him. So he knows that he's going to have a driving lane. And if Dickinson's guy steps up to jet jet has the skill and awareness and quick decision-making ability to just make that pocket pass to Dickinson, who's more than eager to roll to the rim. So there, there's just very little, if any, delay in what he's reading and reacting to because he just knows where everyone he, – he already knows what his options are on each of these plays and is just going to take what the defense gives him, and he rarely makes it more complicated than it needs to be. So on that note, I want to break down the last clip that you have in the article because – this, I think, really describes, you know, in film exactly what you were just talking about of, you know, basically on this possession, it's similar to plays that Michigan had run previously. But, you know, rather than the defender abandoning the three-point shooter, you know, he basically says, no, I'm not going to have the open three-point shooter knock down the shot again. I'm going to stay home. And Howard immediately pivots and just drives to the rim for an easy layup. And, you know, that's sort of what I was talking about earlier of, if he sees the opportunity, if the play doesn't, you know, unfold the way that he would like it to, or that the coaching staff would like it to in theory, you know, he's not going to be someone who, you know, hesitates at the perimeter and then, you know, kicks the ball out to somebody else. Hey, this is your problem now. Right. Like when Howard sees that the defender is staying home on the three point shooter, it's like, okay, great. Open lane for me, easy attack. Right. It's like, and you know, you mentioned this earlier in the piece as well, but running the same play over and over and over again, Defenses can adjust to it, read it, make better choices on those plays. But if you have someone who's going to run the same play and then just when you get to the part where you think you know what's going on as a defense, that's when he audibles, you know, going back to the quarterback metaphor again, you know, he audibles as soon as he sees that the play is not breaking down the same way that it did the previous time. I mean, that's when you can just, you know, incredibly simplify your offense to an incredible degree, just run the same play over and over, knowing that the guy who's going to have the ball in his hands is going to be able to read and react to the defense rather than just, okay, this is my read. Oh no, the opening's not there. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You know, he's not going to be hesitant in those kind of situations. Yeah. And like the, the plays that I highlighted in the piece, they, they're not overly complicated. They're pretty simple really where just all Michigan does is go into a little bit of motion, get the defense moving a little bit, give Jed Howard a screen from a really big dude. And then out of that, he has four or five options and it's just read and react. If that defense rotates, okay, make the skip pass to the open shooter. Who's going to be on the weak side. Defense doesn't your defender goes over the screen. Cool. Awesome. Wide open driving lane or a pocket pass to a seven foot one, 260 pound dude. Just they're giving him a lot of options out of these plays 
and I feel like we don't typically see freshmen given that level of responsibility or trust. Obviously the coaches thing comes into play again. I know that, but Juwan Howard wouldn't be doing this if Jet wasn't capable of it. And I'm not, not to take shots at Jace Howard, who's a nice player, but Jace Howard is also Juwan Howard's son. They're not running these things for Jace. So it, it's just a testament to his size, his skill, his versatility, and just his processing ability because you take any one of those away, he becomes a lot easier to guard. If he's not the shooter that he is, defenders can just go under these screens and take away a lot of what he's capable of doing. If he doesn't have the size, it makes his ability to attack attack the rim a lot harder. Um, if he's not the passer that he is, then defenders can help a little more aggressively off of him. And then because they know that the pass to either the roller or the weak side shooters isn't going to be accurate and they'll have time to recover. So it's just all of these pieces about his game that just perfectly fit together and make him just an absolute nightmare for defenses to deal with. So before we wrap up on Jet Howard, just wanted to talk through a few parts of his game other than the off-ball movement on offense, which is spectacular. But the other side of the ball, I mean, he's had some moments as a weak side shot blocker, but... I have concerns. I'll put it that way. And yeah. I have a feeling based on your facial expressions in reaction to that, that you do too. So let's at least get it out of the way. The Jet Howard defense discussion. Any thoughts? Um, off ball, it's a disaster. <laughs> it's it's so bad. Um, he gets caught ball watching and back cut all the time. Um, when his guy goes to run off a screen, he's usually a step or two late to react to it. Um, it, it feels it's, like the Kendall it, Brown it, discussion from last exactly year. That's exactly where it's going. It's like, this is yeah. like <laughs> Kendall Brown all over again, where he's this awesome off-ball mover on the other side of the floor. He knows exactly how to manipulate defenses with it and just has no idea how to defend it. Um, it's shocking. Uh, I've actually been a little more encouraged with the Zonball stuff. He's He can be a little slow-footed, um, but I think his size uh, covers up a lot of warts in that realm, and he just feels a little more engaged, but the the off-ball stuff has been brutal. Yeah, I think part of the reason that I'm not as worried about his defense as I would be otherwise is just because of that size. I mean, he's got an NBA frame already, and, you know, given that he's 6'8", he's someone who you can hide him on a reasonable number of different players at the NBA level, and... You know, you don't exactly stick around for long in the NBA if you're, oh, we have to hide him on this guy unless you're just absolutely spectacular in some other areas. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, with Howard, I think it's a similar thing for me with Kendall Brown, which is, you know, I have some faith that he's got the athletic tools. He's got to figure this out at some point. But, you know, again, as you mentioned, the off-ball stuff is just really, really not great. And that's always concerning when you're talking about someone with such a high feel for the game on the other end of the floor that they just can't seem to figure it out on the defensive end. Usually for me, I think my automatic assumption is it's an effort thing. If you're that aware on the offensive end and just can't figure it out on the defense. And that definitely tracks with what you said about his on-ball defense being much better because, you know, again, as you mentioned, he doesn't have the quickest feet in the world, but I'm not really worried about his athletic tools overall in terms of his ability to guard. It's just that, you know, he's, he's, he's got to be able to guard at some point, right? Otherwise, otherwise it's a much trickier evaluation. And 
again, because he has those physical tools and because he has that understanding of the game that shines so clearly on the offensive end, it's really tough to evaluate his defense because you just expect him to be better and he's just not. Yeah, and I, I think at the end of the year, I, I think the evaluation on his defense is just going to be pretty simple, that it's just bad. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to get any better at Michigan this year because it's this is a really bad defensive Michigan team, um, as we've seen in recent games. Christ. Wait, are um, you telling me that Hunter Dickinson isn't the defensive anchor that every team needs? Are you, t- are you telling me that he's not the Rudy Gobert of Michigan? I, I am not. Um yeah. Well, uh, yeah, no. Um, that was cruel I, on two different fronts. I'm really sorry. <laughs> where, where, where's the sign out button here? Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> it, it'll just be, it'll be really important, obviously with all prospects, but I guess it'll be more fascinating to see where Jed Howard ends up landing in an NBA sense, because, you know, based on his what processing and awareness on the offensive end, we have to believe that there's a good defender somewhere lurking deep down way, way deep down in there. And they just don't have, I don't know if it's the coaching staff or just the lack of that on floor example for him to really learn from in the NBA. Maybe that changes. Maybe he gets that veteran leadership and coaching where it's like, Hey, no, like this is what you need to be doing. And if you don't, you're not playing Um, in college. He is all, his offense is good enough, and obviously his dad is the coach, so he's going to play. And the defensive issues aren't really ever going to diminish his playing time, and the repercussions from it aren't ever going to be big enough where it's, there's really going to be that oversized influence to change it. So I don't think it's some, if it ever does improve, I don't think it's going to be something we see until he's in the NBA. And a lot of that will have to do with the roster that he lands on. You'd think that former Miami Heat coach Juwan Howard would know how to teach defense to his son, but apparently not. I guess Heat culture didn't carry over all the way. Yeah, well, it, 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 it's not just on them. There, there's a lot of uh, inept defenders on this team. Let's just put it that way. So let's wrap up then on a more positive note with Jed Howard rather than talking about the defense. So quickly just going through some of the on-ball stuff, which, you know, I mean, it's related to some of the off-ball movement stuff, especially when we were talking about, you know, that last clip of him driving to the basket, but he has a really good handle for someone his size. And that I think is going to be huge for projecting his role going forward because, you know, again, it circles back to what we were talking about earlier, where he has answers if teams force him off the three-point line. And, you know, given how good of a shooter he is and given how good he is at getting himself open off the ball, his on the ball game is going to be huge for him. You know, again, I don't think he's going to be like a 25 point per game scorer at any point in his career, but you know, just the ability to be able to do something positive with the ball in his hands is a huge boost to his game. And, you know, again, the passing has been the biggest surprise, but I think his handle is also a huge part of the evaluation for him in terms of what he can be going forward. Yeah. And it just lets him get to, all three areas of the floor and be effective in them. Um, you know, if so, it, I, I hate to go back to Jabari Smith, but that was a big limiter for him last year and this year too, where, okay. Yeah. He's huge. He has an awesome shot. He can run off screens. He can get open, but when you run him off the line, is he doing anything other than a one dribble pull up? And nope. 
unfortunately, and Jets currently showing that he can, you know, snake into that mid-range pull-up or get all the way to the rim or, you know, reuse that screen and hit a step back three. So just that that use of that handle with the shooting, the passing, the size, it's it just opens up a lot of doors that aren't available to other players. And then finally, before we wrap up on Jet Howard, where do you see him going in the 2023 draft? And I will just, I will start things off here. I dramatically jumped him up my board from the first uh, big board that we did over at NoSealingNBA.com. And he is now sitting at 15th on my 2023 big board. And I think it's going to be tough for him to crack the top 10 because this is a very loaded class. But if I'm remembering correctly, you have him in or around that top 10. I definitely think he's going to be a green room invite player. I don't know if that means he's going to be, you know, going in the early to mid twenties, or if that means he's going to be going in the teens, like I have him going, or if he's going to be in the lottery. But I think just given what we've seen from him to start the season, he would have to fall off pretty dramatically to not get a green room invite. And I mean, you know, we were talking about Kendall Brown earlier, Kendall Brown fell all the way off the map and he still got drafted. I think that, you know, with Kendall Brown, he couldn't shoot either, which was another yeah. part of why he fell. To do with, so. Yes, that too. And that's not going to be a problem for Jet Howard. So again, I think even if he craters, he's still probably going to be a first round draft pick. But I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. Do you think he's a top 10 guy? Do you think maybe he could end up going higher? Or where do you think he's going to land by the time we get to draft night? Uh, so I, I currently have him at 11. Um I, I, I'm guessing that's a little rich for most people. Um, I would, if I had to bet on it, I would say top 20 would be where I kind of think in that, you know, 14 to 20 range would be my guess. Um, because at that size, the shooting, the skill, everything we just talked about, it's hard to pass that up. You don't often get guys who can shoot at that size and then do the other things that he does on offense. That's, that's a really tough archetype to find. So I think that alone, um, you know, makes him a top 20, top 25 guy pretty easily. It'll just be fascinating to see what teams really think of his defense and how much that scares them off. Um, if, if they convince themselves that the size, you know, the baseline athleticism is good enough and just the overall IQ is there to be just an average defender. I, I it wouldn't shock me if he went lottery, but I could definitely see a lot of teams just getting scared off of just him getting back cut every other possession. Yeah. I think we're in the same boat here. I mean, green room guy. And then the question is if he goes higher than that top 20, which I don't know. I mean, there are definitely teams in that 15 to 20 or teams that will end up in that 15 to 20 Mm -hmm. range that could definitely add someone like him and say, eh, you know what? The defense will come along as it comes along, but adding him to our offense is going to be big enough that we're willing to take that risk. Yeah, and that that's a trade-off we see teams make all the time. So it, it, a lot of it will be just what are they what do they convince themselves of with his defense? Well, someone who teams will not have to convince themselves of his defense, the other player we're talking about today in your previous Friday screener, so the one before your recent article on Jet Howard, you broke down Scoot Henderson's playmaking and Scoot is pretty clearly in the top two of this draft for virtually everyone. And 
you know, I believe that his 16 assist game was either the day of or the day after that day article. After. Yeah. Day after. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, look, look pretty good for you on that one, but you know, the problem obviously with Scoot is that he's just a terrible, terrible athlete. One of the worst. athletes. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's, that's a, that's not a real thing. He's a great athlete. I'm just fucking with someone who hopefully <laughs> will listen to this and give me crap for it. But in terms of Scoot, I mean, what we saw from him last season was just exceptional play from a 17 year old against grown professionals. And this year, he's just taking it up to another level. He has the ball in his hands a lot more. He's the clear lead guy for this G League Ignite squad. And man, I mean, on the first edition of the Home and Away podcast on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network, Stephen Gillespie and I talked about why Stephen has Scoot as his number one guy. And I'm not on the same page. I admitted same. that then. I'll admit it now. But if you're making a case for Scoot as the number one guy in this class, I think that, you know, the playmaking is really going to be the determining factor there because I mean, we've seen just how incredible of a scorer he is. We've seen how great he is from the mid range. We've seen how his three point shot is slowly improving alongside his excellent mid range game. But if you're saying, all right, what really separates Scoot from everybody else? I think it is that playmaking that you touched on in that article. Yeah. And to, not, not not to necessarily poo-poo on Steven here, um, but I, I had Scoot as my number one guy coming into the season. And for, you know, up until that G League versus Metropolitans matchup, um, because Victor hadn't shown up to that point, basically everything he's showing now. And, you know, if in a vacuum, if you just compare their skill sets, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between the two, but then you add in the fact that Victor's, 14 inch or 12 inches taller, 14 inches, whatever taller. That's a big 7, difference. Inches taller. Yeah. You know, he, so in a vacuum, I think scoot would go number one in, you know, 90% of drafts. I think he's that good where the scoring is really measured and versatile. He can play on or off ball. The shot continues to improve. He's an awesome defender, but yeah. The big leap in that first year where he was 17 playing against professionals to this year is his playmaking. And as a 17-year-old, it was really flashy. It was so much fun where he's making these wild driving kicks and just these really highlight-prone assists. And this year we're seeing a little less of it, but it's all just so much more measured. And he's doing the little things that open up passing windows that he wasn't doing last year where – when he's in the pick and roll and his guy goes over the screen and he's in a two-on-one situation, he's taking that extra dribble to his right to just make that window for the pocket pass, you know, six inches bigger than it was previously and gives his guy just an extra foot of, of lane to roll into. So it's just little stuff like that where he's really maximizing angles in every aspect of the offense to just constantly punish defenses. We talked about this with Jaden Hardy last year. We talked about this with Jalen Green the year before, but basically the expectation when you throw a teenager into a league of professionals is, you know, unless they're say future hall of famer, Alperin Shangun, they're going to struggle against, <laughs> I had to, they're, they're going to struggle against professional competition for the first time in their lives. And, you know, as you mentioned with Scoot, right, you're going to get these, you know, overexcited, super fun, super flashy kinds of moves, but you know, the difference there is 
Jalen Green and Jaden Hardy, you know, had to do that over the course of the season and then boom, end of the year draft time, right? With Scoot, it's like we saw him get through the, you know, super excited to be playing his first professional season jitters as they were, you know, to whatever extent Scoot Henderson had jitters scoring 17, 18 points per game as a 17-year-old in the G League. But, you know, now this year, I think you really hit the nail on the head. You're seeing a lot more mature playmaking out of him. You're seeing him reading and manipulating defenses rather than, you know, just making flashy kickout passes. And I don't know. I mean, that's really where you see the rest of his game rounding out. And it's weird to make this comparison this season, given that he's having a strange year after not playing at all. But that when that was really what stood out to me when evaluating John Wall was, okay, this guy is just ridiculously athletic, you know, fastest player in the league end to end. But what really takes his game over the top is he's not just, you know, and this is a bit unfair the other direction, but, you know, he's not just Russell Westbrook charging the rim, charging the rim, charging the rim, charging the rim, charging the rim. It's like he also makes great kickout passes. I mean, John Wall led the league in three-point assists, like, four out of five seasons during his peak with the wizards, mm-hmm. something ridiculous like that. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, that's really what I've seen from Scoot Henderson this year. That's been the most impressive is as he, you know, as you mentioned the piece, he's taken another leap as a passer. He's gotten the jitters, whatever you can call the jitters, given how spectacular he was last year, but even those minimal jitters, he's gotten out of the way and he's just making spectacular reads all over the floor. Yeah, and just his sense of where everyone is at all times is absurd, and he knows exactly what he knows exactly how everyone behind his point of attack defender, um, he knows exactly how they're going to move based on whatever his defender does, and he knows exactly where he needs to attack or dribble to or you know move his eyes to manipulate them to create an opening for whether he wants to score or whether he wants to find the guy with the hot hand. And that's what I love so much about him too, is that he never really forces things. If he's hot, yeah, he's going to look for his own bucket. If one of his guys has hit a couple threes in a row, he's going to go out of his way to set them up for another open look. If his guy is him and F.A. Abu Gidi are developing a really nice pick and roll tandem and chemistry out of that, and he knows, okay, let me just take a couple side dribbles here to kind of feint uh, a mid-range pull-up to get that drop defender to bite to me. And then I'm just going to throw the lob up over them for F.A. to go to go and get. It's just all these little things where it's so easy for him right now. And the game looks slow. And I mean that as a complete compliment because he's just processing everything so much quicker than everyone else. And he's like a puppet master, just making them do whatever he wants. The processing speed is outstanding for any prospect, but particularly for a prospect who's, you know, 18 and in his second professional season is, is particularly absurd. And, you know, something else sort of that follows through on that, you know, sort of unselfishness that we've seen from him is how good he is as an off ball player as well. And, you know, you note that in the piece, but, For me, I think that's going to be particularly huge because, you know, he's not someone like the archetypes we've talked about of, you know, the Devin Booker types, the Zach Levine types, where like you give him the ball at the next level and you expect him to learn how to be an NBA point guard, right? With Scoot, you know, you basically got most of what you want from him as a point guard already. But in particular, I mean, his ability to play off ball and to make great reads, you know, attacking off ball 
is going to be even bigger for him because it makes it easier to see him fitting into a much wider variety of contexts. You know, it's not just Scoot has to be the only thing going for your offense, right? It's like he can he can play off other players as well. And, you know, we saw that last year with Jaden Hardy and, you know, we're seeing it this year with the entire G League Ignite crew around him, you know, him sort of as the maestro running the point. But it's not just when he has the ball in his hands. It's that he can see the floor really well when he's off the ball and, you know, make immediate reads when the ball does swing his way. And I, I think that's a really, really important part when we, part of his game, when we talk about who Scoot is as a prospect, because so often these young guys grow up with the ball always, and they turn into incredible players because they're too athletic. They're too skilled. They're too good of shooters to be defended. But in the NBA, everyone's going to be kind of on that similar skill size athleticism standpoint and you're not always going to be able to break everyone down in isolation and you have to know what to do when you don't have the ball or else you're just completely ineffective that's been one of the big talking points with guys like trey young and russell westbrook is can they play off ball if you know how how much how much into their career do we have to go to be like yeah probably not and i'm not (laughs) trying to throw throw shade at those guys or anything just the first two examples that come to mind, but Scoot's already doing that and he's willing to do it. It's not, okay, I'm going to give the ball up and go stand in the corner. It's okay. I'm going to give the ball up, go set a back screen for Mojave King in the corner and then curl off a pin down and attack the lane and then kick it out to city on the, in the corner. It's unselfish. It's knowing that there are different areas of the game where his gravity still attracts defenders to him and that makes life easier for his teammates so yes he's a point guard yes he's at his very best when he has the ball but he's not inept when he's off the ball he's not complacent and just standing around and not doing anything he's still making an impact with his movement his shooting his decision making attacking closeouts the athleticism it's just every time every minute he's on the floor he's finding ways to make the offense and his teammates better Tying this back to what we were talking about with Jet Howard, you know, with Jet Howard, it's easy in some sense to see why he's developed the off-ball skills that he has because he wasn't, unlike most of these prospects, again, he wasn't, you know, necessarily the best player on his high school team, right? He had great players around him, probable first-round picks, if not lottery picks around him, and, you know, that helped him to develop those off-ball skills because he didn't have the ball in his hands all the time, and with Scoot, I think that makes it honestly even more impressive that he is someone who's basically yeah. had the ball in his hands his entire life. Even last year as a 17-year-old playing professional basketball for the first time, he still had the ball in his hands a whole lot, you know, given the context around him. And yet, you know, just in those sort of minimal off-ball opportunities that he's gotten, he's shown this ability to be a threat without the ball in his hands. And especially given that his three-point shooting is probably the biggest weakness in his game right now his ability to be a off ball threat, even without really much of a threat from long range is absolutely critical to him being able to be successful sooner rather than later at the NBA level. Yeah. It's just winning basketball. Like Jed Howard learned all these off ball skills because he had to, that's how he was going to get minutes. He wasn't going to get minutes by being this dominant on ball creator because IMG already had three of them who, you know, were five-star recruits as well. So it's like, okay, well, that's not my path to minutes. That's not my path to success and D1 scholarships. So how can I find that? And obviously Scoot is the on-ball monster that he is, but it's like the the game got 
easy for him. And it's like a video game where he maxed out all his attributes in like the main area. So he just kind of moved over to the secondary area already and is already starting to max those out as well. And he's 18. It's just the the self-awareness, the selflessness, the unselfishness, the basketball IQ and the versatility that he's showing already at this stage of his career is really astounding. So quickly before we wrap up, I do just want to circle back to the shooting with Scoot. Now, in the early going this season, he's actually knocked down almost half of his three-pointers, and he's taken 17 of them over six games, so not a non-existent sample size. Do you think that's going to be something that, you know, he stays solid from three-point range, just given how great of a mid-range shooter he is? I mean, I don't think he's going to be at 47% from deep by the end of the season. I think that's, you know, that's way too much to ask. But I think it would be huge for him to just be in the low 30s from three as opposed to, you know, in the 20s like he was last year. Do Do you see any sort of big differences in his shot from this year as opposed to last year? Um, I, I think the biggest thing is that he's just getting used to the range. Um, I, yeah. la- last year, he was a 17 year old who went from high school range to NBA range. That's a big jump. Um, that takes, a, you know, a lot of adjustments in mechanics, strength, conditioning, all that kind of stuff. And I, th- I think people kind of wrote him off as just a flat out bad shooter a little too early and didn't kind of factor in that change of distance. Um, the mid range shot looks almost identical to what it was last year. And it's, smooth it's effortless it's he has good touch on it um i really buy the mid-range if he shoots 47 percent all year on volume um i might move him ahead of victor because then that'll just be fucking ridiculous uh i don't think that's should ever be the expectation though if he can get to 35 percent for the whole season on good volume i think that'd be a massive win because that would show a huge leap from last year's production um as long as he's in the thirties, I'm good. And as long as he continues to keep shooting, I'm good. That's, that's all I really care about because I think last year it was just a big hurdle from, you know, from coming from where he was, I think it was a big adjustment. That was really the only thing we saw him really struggle with adjusting from his high school play to professional, which is ridiculous, but that was the big area Um, with Jaden Hardy. You know, we kind of saw him struggle with, the size and athleticism jump from what he experienced in high school with scoot. It was the outside shot. I long-term, I don't really have any major concerns. Um, he's, I would be stunned if he ever turns into Steph Curry. I don't think that's realistic at all, but I also don't think he's going to be in the twenties as a three point shooter. Yeah, I'm with you. I wasn't too concerned about the three point shooting long-term just because he's so great as a mid range shooter. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. I lean on Kings related comparisons very frequently on this podcast. And I'm going to do it again here. I think it's similar to De'Aaron Fox where you do enough well on the offensive end outside of the three point shooting that as long as you are in the low to mid thirties on volume, everything else is going to more than make up for it. And I think Scoot's in a very similar boat purely on the shooting front, because in terms of the rest of his offensive game, I mean, Scoot shows much better ability to manipulate pace than De'Aaron Fox did until like year three, year four in the league. And, you know, De'Aaron Fox is a guard who went fifth overall and 
you know, hasn't quite gotten to an all-star game yet, but is a very solid fifth overall pick, you know, when you look at the history of fifth overall picks. And, you know, I'm comparing him to someone who at 18 is already, you know, very far ahead of him in one of the critical areas for point guard evaluation. So just to wrap up, you already mentioned this, but I think Scoot would go number one in the vast majority of NBA drafts that we've had in the past two decades. And the fact that I think we both pretty clearly have him at number two in this class says nothing at all about how spectacular of a prospect Scoot Henderson is and everything about how ridiculous of an alien yes. Victor Wembanyama is. Uh, yeah, a, a, a thousand percent. Um, I, I feel gross having Scoot at two because it's like this guy's uh, this guy should be a number one prospect. Uh, but just everything Victor has shown this year, um, I, it, I, I I shouldn't say it's impossible not to have him at one, but. It, it's you just said that if you shot 47% the whole year, you'd put him at number one. I don't think it is impossible. Yeah. Well, I, um, <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 I don't think there's a loser in this draft. Um, if someone, whoever gets the second pick, I think they're going to be ecstatic because the, the encore production, um, the leadership, the culture, the competitiveness that he's going to bring to a roster from day one, it's, a, it's everything you want from a number two pick, let alone a number one pick. All right. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap things up here? Uh, no, n- n- nothing else from me this week over at NoSealingsNBA.com. Um, holiday shenanigans are taking over my life. So that's where <laughs> we're at. But there, there's still going to be stuff coming out all week over there. It's all free. Just go click that subscribe button. There you go. That's Tyler Metcalf for you. Not plugging himself, only plugging those ceilings. Just a, a team player over here, you know? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at tmetcalf11, and you can find his written work on No Ceilings NBA, as well as over at Canis Hoopus. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and you can also find my written work on noceilingsnba.com. I will be doing a sleeper deep dives piece this week on Deron Holmes II out of Dayton. That will be going up on Friday. No, that will be going up tomorrow, actually, slash the day that you are listening to this podcast. I, of course, have the schedule memorized because it's definitely not chaos week over here at No Ceilings with the holidays. Definitely not. Not in the slightest. In any case, uh, again, you can find that on noceilingsnba.com later in the day on Wednesday if you are... Stephen Gillespie and listening to this at four o'clock in the morning, East coast time, the piece will not be up yet, but shout out Stephen for being that guy. Who's always the first to listen to these things. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end and especially much appreciated now that we're almost at the end of month one of the no ceilings NBA podcast being a daily podcast in your feeds. So if you haven't yet, please leave a rating and a review. And if you have any feedback on the Deep Dives podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Cool.